Grace and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers and my sisters in Christ. Is there health benefits to religion? That's what one article published in the Wall Street Journal last Wednesday sought to answer. Does having religion belonging to a belief system pose any health benefits? Now what's interesting that they're still writing articles about this is that the evidence already suggests yes. Study after study has shown that people who belong to a church, who belong to a faith group, let's call it, have better chances at longevity, have over, report overall higher senses of well-being, of belonging, of purpose. And some studies suggest that it even helps your metabolism to belong to a church. So why are we still asking this question? Is there any health benefit to religion? Seems like the answer is yes. But then there's the court of public opinion. On Facebook, where I found the link to this article, the comments were overwhelmingly negative. Is there benefit to religion? The commenters said, no way, Jose. And they cited their beliefs that religion is responsible for most of the major global conflicts. You've heard that argument before. They said that people who belong to religion tend to be more judgmental and critical of other people. You've heard that before, certainly. And so the public opinion seems to be that no, there is no benefit to religion. It is a bad thing. So who's right? The studies keep showing that practicing a religion is physically, biologically good for you, but people keep saying that religion is responsible for all these negative things in the world. So who's right? What if they're both wrong? Either way, Moses is about to find out. In our text for today, Moses is about to find out exactly what religion can do for you. A lot has happened in Moses' life. He was born an Israelite, born a Hebrew during the time of the Hebrew slavery in Egypt. He was born into a slave family. But through some pretty spectacular circumstances, he wound up being raised in Pharaoh's household, the king of Egypt. So from Moses' childhood, he understood privilege. He understood wealth as a kid. He lacked for nothing. Moses had it pretty good, which makes it even stranger what he does in his adulthood. As soon as Moses is old enough to leave the house, that's what he does. He turns tail on his Egyptian stepfamily and runs. He decides to identify more with his birth culture, with the Hebrews and the Israelites, than the culture that raised him, the Egyptians. And this is how he shows it. He chooses a profession that would have made his Egyptian step-grandma roll in her grave. He decides that he is going to hang out and take care of and get his hands on those filthy, disgusting creatures sheep. The Egyptians could not stand shepherds. They thought they were the grossest 
people alive. And so Moses, choosing this as his profession, he's communicating something. He's done with Egypt. He wants to be identified as a Hebrew, as an Israelite. He wants to side with his birth culture. Now, how about the religion of his birth culture? Well, he's about to have that religion smacked right into his face, isn't he? As he's out in the wilderness, tending to his flocks, having leading them toward whatever vegetation you can find out in the desert, whatever water you can find, as you're shepherding your flock, you have time to take in your surroundings. You have time to look around you. You have time to think. And when something looks kind of interesting, when you want to check something out, you have time to do that. So I don't know if Moses heard it first or if he saw some smoke but he sees that a bush is on fire. That's interesting, because as he looks closer, there's no campsite where somebody forgot to put out their fire from the night before that is lighting the vegetation on fire. There's no logical explanation for why this bush is on fire. And he looks and he looks, and he's probably staring at it for a good couple minutes, and this little thorn bush is crackling, and it's, uh, it's fully ablaze, but it's not going anywhere. It's not burning up. So Moses draws closer to this burning bush to check it out. He's got the time to do it. His sheep are going to stay there. He's all good. And then he hears it. The voice of God himself calling his name. Moses, Moses, God says. In Hebrew, it's affectionate to repeat somebody's name twice. And so God is essentially saying, my dear Moses, my little Moses, come over here. But as you do, I want you to do something, Moses. I want you to take your sandals off. It's a sign of respect. Don't bring your dirty outside dirt sandals with your outside dirt into my holy space because this area is holy ground. It's kind of like whenever somebody feels compelled to take their hat off when they come into church. Sign of respect. Sign of acknowledging a superior now, that's what this article in the Wall Street Journal gets wrong. What's the attitude of that question? Is there any health benefit to religion? What's the question underneath the question? Isn't it, does religion pose any tangible results? Anything you can hang your hat on? Does religion actually make a difference? Will it actually help you in some way? Isn't that behind the question of that article? It's as if the posture of the person writing it, or maybe the person reading it, is God might exist, or he might not. And what determines if I will accept him or not is if he can benefit me, if he can make prolong my life, if he can take away some stress, if he can provide me with well-being, if he can increase my metabolism. And do you see how ridiculous that is? Now, statistics suggest that it does. There is benefit to religion, but that those benefits you could grab with any sort of religion. It doesn't matter if you're worshiping the God of the Bible or Allah or the Care Bears or Beyonce. Any group that you enter that gives you welcome and acceptance and gives you a unity of purpose will give you those health benefits. Regardless, what of the one true God? 
What of the God who spoke to Moses and revealed just a tiny, tiny sliver of his glory to that shepherd who married into the family of the priest of Midian? What benefit does God's presence offer? Is it good for our health? Well, not if you approach God, the holy God, the perfect God, in your unholiness, with the dirt on your sandals still on your feet, let's say. That will not be good for your health. That's why Moses hid his face, because he understood something that maybe the writer of the article for the Wall Street Journal doesn't understand, that God is holy, that God's holiness far surpasses ours. We do not deserve the right to sit in judgment of God, to say, I'll take you or leave you. It depends on what you can offer. No, God sits in judgment of us because he is holier than we are. That's the realization that Moses had smack him in the face. He was not in a position to be able to question, to wonder, to decide if God is worth accepting or not, because there he was in his glory. So far be it from us. We have to kill that part in our hearts that holds out on trusting in God only so far as he can prove his worth to us. No, it's the other way around, isn't it? God exists. How are we going to prove our worth to him? And that word religion has most certainly lost its meaning over time, hasn't it? Religion is simply who you understand God to be and how you understand you relate to him. Religion, in its basic meaning, is what you believe life to be about. And so it's not just about finding a group to belong to. It's about how do you understand your entire life? How does God, the way he reveals himself to Moses, change Moses' understanding, change our understanding of what our lives are even about? Because it's probably self-evident that some sort of God exists. It's not self-evident that the God of the Bible is the one that exists. That needs to be revealed to us. God needs to introduce himself to us. God needs to have a seat at the table. God needs to grab the microphone and tell us who he is. And that's what he does through a burning bush to Moses and to you and me. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Is there any benefit 
to trusting and believing in the one true God, in the God who revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush? Well, to answer that question, you can ask Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Three generations of men in the Old Testament who were called into very difficult circumstances where they had no choice but to trust in the name of God. And when they trusted in the name of their Lord God, what happened? God saved them. What is God communicating to Moses and to you and me by calling himself, by introducing himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's saying, I am the God who, yes, is holy, yes, is perfect, yes, is righteous, but I am the God who chooses to be involved, chooses to be involved in people's lives. I am the God who loves people, even unholy people, even worthless, unworthy people, even sinful people such as you and me. If you want examples of that, look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's almost as if God knows, God can hear the objection of the sinful heart as soon as we hear that God is loving and involved. If he is, we might be tempted to say, then how come he lets X, Y, Z happen? If you were alive at Moses' time, you have already been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. If God is loving, you might be tempted to say, as an Old Testament Israelite, then why has he allowed us to be oppressed by the Egyptians for so long? If God is loving, why is he allowing us to suffer in Egypt? But if you're tempted to say that, realize that you're tempted to make the same mistake that the author of that Wall Street Journal article made. That God's job, that God's only purpose is to help you with your right here and now, that God isn't concerned about the big picture, that God should be concerned about your moment-to-moment -moment life. So what is God really reminding Moses and you and me when he calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He says, I'm the God of the big picture. I'm the God of the promises that I have made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about everything I said to those three gentlemen. Think about everything I did for them. Think about the promises that I made to them, the promises that go back to the garden when mankind fell into sin. And I promised that the seed of the woman would come to crush the serpent's head. And God kept that promise alive to Abraham, spoke it and spoke it again, reminding Abraham time and again and to Isaac and to Jacob. And now it's going to be Moses' turn to hear of God's love and carry that through. Because God has much bigger things in mind than just helping me with whatever I'm facing right now. God has your eternity in mind. Don't make the mistake of thinking that because God is allowing suffering now that he's completely lost track. God never loses track. That's what he's proving to Moses by identifying with these three gentlemen, that God has been keeping his promise throughout history all along, and he still will.
Because now is the time, God says, for me to act and to make good on that promise I made to Abraham to bless his descendants with a land of their own. Yes, it's a land that belongs to several other nations right now. But by referring to that, God is letting Moses know that the promise will be fulfilled through his miraculous intervention. Because God has a bigger promise that out of that land and out of Abraham's line is going to come a descendant who will be born and will be the most magnificent person we've ever met because he will be God in the flesh. He will go to a cross and he will shed his blood and he will set us free from our slavery to sin. He will set us free from our guilt and our death and our hell Is there a benefit to religion? Is there a benefit to believing in the one true God? Well, I would say so. Because the the one way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, is the only way of salvation. And he is fully and freely provided for you. It's just that he has a lot more in store for you than just helping you with your metabolism or giving you a better sense of well-being or promising you even earthly longevity, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Not just to give you longevity, but to give you eternal life. Not just to give you a little bit of sense of direction, but to change who you are. See, we the, the writer of that article presupposes that we're all on this track, right? That we're living our life, and maybe, or maybe not, religion can help you on the track that you're on. But the one true religion of the one true God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ, that does more than just help you in your life. God's holiness wraps you up and changes who you are. He changes your very self as you are crucified with Christ and you rise with him in faith. That's so much better than just a couple little helpful hints in your life. That's what God is in it to do. That's why what God is keeping track of. So God is moved by our suffering. He cares about what you're going through. He sees what's on the El Paso news. He knows what's, what crises our nation is facing and what global issues are still plaguing us. He knows what keeps you up at night. He knows why you bite your nails, why you have trouble sleeping. What makes you so stressed out? He knows what you feel guilty about, and his compassion for you moves him to intervene. might not be on your timetable. It might not be in the way you want to, but remember, Jesus or God has the bigger picture in mind. He has not lost track of his love for you. And the way that he intervenes, it's a little interesting. That's what Moses learns next. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. This will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then who shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. You know what I find funny about this lesson? It's not the way Moses protests. He has not yet erred, erred on the side of disrespect. He has not yet disrespected God's call for him to be his servant. That comes later if you keep reading in Exodus. But Moses' question, who am I that I should go, is, is pretty logical. God is calling him to do some pretty amazing stuff, to take millions and millions of people and be their leader to bring them out of Egypt. Any one of us would be shaking in our boots but what's kind of funny is the way God responds. He doesn't answer his question at all. Who am I that God should consider me? That's how we think, right? When you pick someone to date or to marry, when you pick someone to promote or to hire, when you pick someone to call and to invite out for a beer, you're thinking about who that person is and what they can do for you, right? That's normal for human relationships. But God does not think that way. Why is God calling Moses, of all people, to be his leader for the Israelites? It's not because Moses has anything to offer God. Why does God handpick you to give you faith, to call you into his family, to reveal the truth to you, the only way to salvation. Why does he do that for you? It's not because you can offer him anything in return. It's only because he loves you. We pick people because of what they can do for us. God picks people because of what he can do for them. And that is grace and grace alone. And so Moses' question whether or not he realizes it is totally inappropriate. Who am I that you should choose me to be your leader? Who you are doesn't matter, Moses. Who I am, God is saying, matters. And I am who I am. God, the eternal present. God, whose compassion and power and holiness and righteousness have always existed and have never changed. He is the God who will be with Moses. He is the God who will be with you. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of relationship with human beings, the God who makes promises and keeps those promises, that's the God who is with you. And he is who he is, and he will be who he will be. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. And so his forgiveness and love for you never change. His compassion and mercy for you never change. Malcolm Gladwell is a journalist and author. Recently, he was discussing the importance of shared experiences. And to illustrate that, he shared a story about a day when New York City was completely silent. Nobody was in the restaurants. Nobody was walking around the streets. Every single person in New York City was parked in front of their TV. Because what was going on? the final episode of Seinfeld was airing. And everyone was going to watch it. Everyone parked in front of their TV. And he talks about how that wouldn't happen now because we have streaming services and yada yada. But 
The point is valid. Shared experiences are so important. And the Wall Street Journal article illustrates that, those medical studies illustrate that, that when you have a group that you're sharing things with, whether that's religious or otherwise, that's so good for you, it's important to feel like you belong to something. But how much greater is it to belong to the one true God? Think of what you share with each other. Think of what you share with people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the Israelites after they escaped from slavery in Egypt. What you share is a greater experience than a show written in the 90s. You share the experience of God's saving grace, of God's redemption, of God's promise keeping. That's what we share. And the benefits of that are so much more than just helping with your metabolism or giving you a little bit of longevity in this life. Because what you share with these people, you share forever. Never lose track of God's grace, because he certainly doesn't. He will never lose track of his love for you. Amen.